0: book lovers it's amy here i just want to say before we get started that we had some unforeseen technical issues for the episode this week and my voice may sound a little weird and echoey in the second half of the show we think we have the problem fixed going forward but we were limited in what we could do to fix it for this week but despite my weird voice we have a great interview for you today with aaron flanagan thanks for listening I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you were listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book
1: nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and other readers. Our show follows this format. We begin with my crabby dullness and Amy's sometimes maddening enthusiasm. It took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we often see in literature. That is
0: followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we are reading. And finally, we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some
1: silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. In this week's episode, we chat with Erin Flanagan, an author whose debut novel, Dear Season, won a 2022 Edgar Award for Best First Novel. Her most recent book that published this past summer is a thriller called Blackout. Blackout revolves around a sociology professor named Maris, who begins having blackouts despite the fact that she gave up drinking seven months before, and she then discovers other women in her community are experiencing similar blackouts. It's a bit of a Me Too novel with some speculative science and some vodka thrown in. In addition to being an award-winning writer, Aaron is also a creative writing professor at Wright State University in Ohio. Before we speak with Aaron, you know, we always start by, you know, saying what we've been doing. I just want to say I'm back to school. It's whipping my butt. And also, middle schoolers, I mean, I like them, but they're also a special kind of dumb. They're they hunters. are. They, like, literally, if they have a thought, it comes out of their mouth. H- have you ever heard of That Vegan Teacher? No, what's that? Well, I'm not 100% sure. I had not heard of it. It was sometime last year. (laughs) I started having kids. You know, Louisville right now is in the red. And so we've been having to wear masks. So apparently if I'm wearing a mask, I seem to resemble this person called That Vegan Teacher. She's like on TikTok. And apparently she's like a woman in her, you know, late 40s or 50s who's vegan. And I don't know, like, I don't even know why TikTok people are famous. But anyway, I have kids ask me all the time, are you that vegan teacher? And so then I'll take off my mask and they're like, oh no, you're not. I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) I think it's because like, maybe our hair is similar and we both wear glasses.
0: Well, I'm Um, looking at a picture of that vegan teacher right now. Her hair is a little bit lighter than you. I can see why kids might say that. It is the length of your hair and the glasses. Yeah. But under the about part, it says that she's a animal rights activist, an internet celebrity, a former educator, and a singer-songwriter, mainly known for promoting veganism.
1: Very interesting. Yeah. Well, I tell them, I'm like, folks, I like bacon too much. I'm not vegan. I'm (laughs) not going to convince anybody to be vegan. And I'm also not that vegan teacher. Between that and students going, are you pregnant? Middle schoolers are so awful. So anyway, that's my news for the week. I'm tired and I'm cranky because of these middle schoolers saying stupid things to me. So what have you been doing? You've been watching some pretty good shows. Yeah, it was one that we just
0: finished that I think you should try. Is called Severance. That's on Apple Plus TV. Have you heard of it?
1: I have. And actually, when I saw the, I don't know, it was a preview or something, I told Dean I was like, ooh, that looks good. And it has one of my favorite tall, thin, big nose dudes in it, which is John Turturro. Yes, he's in there. That's so funny that you were, you told me the other day that we have types and your
0: type is tall, thin, and with a big nose, which is very funny. I don't think anybody else would ever
1: say that that's their type. (laughs) <laughs> tall, thin, with a big nose. And glasses. Glasses help. I mean, it's oh, totally the glasses. nerd thing. It's totally the nerd thing. I like the slightly nerdy, but still sexy. Yeah. yeah. I like the totally uh, nerdy. Yeah. So we got sidetracked there on on our types with John Turturro. So anyway, but Severance well, is good. So I should watch it.
0: He, yes. It, it has Adam Scott, who was in Parks and Rec, for people who watched that show. But he plays the main character. And it's definitely unsettling. It's about this company where if you go to work there, they implant something in your brain to separate your work life from your personal life. So when you're at work, you don't know who you are outside of work. You don't know if you have a family, you don't know where you live, you don't know what you do for fun, you don't know any of that. When you're At home, you don't know anything about the side of you who's working. So like on the show, they call people who are working the innies and the people during their off work hours are called the outies. So there's like completely separated, but things start happening, you know, that are kind of strange. Anyway, I really liked it. Um, There's one season out. They're going to have another season. But there was the scene that I think I can tell you about. It's not going to spoil anything, but there's a scene where the department that Adam Scott works for, they met their quota for whatever it is that they do. And so they got an egg party, a Hmm. deviled egg party, which apparently is very coveted. And so there is this scene where they have a deviled egg and it's in the middle of a book. And then Adam Scott slams the book and it slams the egg inside the book. And that was horrifying to me because not only did it ruin a perfectly good book, it also
1: (laughs) ruined... A a perfectly good deviled egg. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a little bit of hell because I can't imagine anybody. I mean, I don't understand deviled eggs. I don't understand the appeal of deviled eggs. I mean, I know you just said it ruined a perfectly good deviled egg, but possibly it's already ruined because it is a deviled egg. (laughs) What don't you like about deviled eggs? You don't like the mustard? I, I mean, I'm not anti-Deviled Egg, but it just doesn't do it for me. I'm just like, I could go my whole life without eating a Deviled Egg. Who thought of this? Who thought this was a good okay. idea? It just doesn't no do to it eggs.
0: No to Deviled Eggs. Well, anyway, it was a very unsettling scene <laughs> as a book
1: lover <laughs> and a Deviled Egg lover. I well, can't help you. You don't like Deviled Eggs. But. Now I'm going to have to watch it only to watch that scene. I'll have to watch the whole season just so I can get to that scene and determine if I, too am troubled by the ruining of this deviled egg and this book. (laughs) But you
0: know what? We've just been talking about weird things in the brain and there's a little bit of some weird things going on the brain in Erin's book. So that is my, that's my tie in today. I like it. So I think we should talk to her about it.
1: We're excited to have Erin Flanagan on the show with us today. Erin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Erin, you have had a very exciting spring and summer in your life. You had your very first novel, your debut, Dear Season, won an Edgar Award mm-hmm. from the Mystery Writers of America. And then your second novel, Blackout, was an Amazon First Reads for June. So, all very exciting stuff. You were the author of two short story collections as well. And you were also an English professor at mm-hmm. Wright State University in Ohio. So, Tell us about your professional path. You obviously started out in an academic setting, and now, besides being an academic, you're also a popular author. So what led to the English and the Ph.D.?
2: Well, I don't think anybody could be more surprised that I ended up an academic than my parents. (laughs) I was not a very good undergraduate student. Like a lot of writers, I was kind of hyper focused on what I liked, but not as interested in what I didn't. And so I didn't do well in a lot of like my science courses and everything like that. So when I got out of undergraduate, I moved to Minneapolis to be near my sister and spent four years there working as a secretary, which I kind of liked, but it didn't seem like it was going to be really a career path. And when I was an undergraduate, one of the classes I really did love was a creative writing class. And so I kept writing all that time. And then when I decided to go back to graduate school for English, kind of was writing on the side as well there while I was studying literature. But it happened one time that the person who was supposed to read at our reading series for the graduate students had to cancel at the last minute. And somebody was like, hey, you write, don't you? And I was like, uh. <laughs> and I ended up getting up with very little warning, which was great because I'm kind of nervous about things like that, getting up and reading. And, you know, people were really responsive to the story. And at that point, I was like, oh, maybe this is more what I'm interested in is a creative writing versus studying literature. So I started taking more classes along that. And while I was at Nebraska, I ended up getting the managing editor gig at Prairie Schooner. And that happened during my master's. And I was like, well, this is pretty awesome. I love working for the magazine. And so I ended up staying for my PhD. I certainly never thought until well into my studies that I was going to end up a professor. But that's the way it ended up going. After I was the managing editor for three years, I ended up taking a teaching internship, kind of round out my program and was very surprised to find how much I love teaching. Like I said, I'm a pretty nervous public speaker. So it did not occur to me that I would maybe want to stand in front of 20 people and yak. (laughs) (laughs) But that ended up being like such a great thing. And I have felt lucky ever since then that I got to do it for a living. Like that's my job as I go in every day and I talk to people, talk to other writers about fiction writing. Like, how is that a job? You know, <laughs> It feels pretty great. That's kind of where the first love has always been in the writing. And especially, like you had mentioned, I have two story collections before I started publishing novels. And that, I think, is, was really my first love. When I was in that undergraduate class for creative writing, it was the first time I really read contemporary short stories and I was like what is this goodness I knew nothing <laughs> about you know I was used to the O. Henry or all the stuff that we're taught in high school and this was kind of mind blowing. So
0: tell me where where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in a small farming community in Iowa in the northwest corner about 1200 people Sanborn, Iowa.
0: So I'm thinking you grew up in Iowa, Mm -hmm. and then you spent some time in Minnesota, and then Mm -hmm. some years in Nebraska, and now you're in Ohio. You are firmly set in the Midwest.
2: (laughs) I don't think I would get along so well anywhere else. Like, (laughs) I, yeah, I love the Midwest. And when I was looking for a job after my PhD, I was like, well, I don't think from a body standpoint, I could live in the South. Like, I think I would be so hot all the time and so crabby. But other than that, I, you know, cast a pretty wide net applying for jobs and ended up in Dayton, firmly in the Midwest my entire life. And now the whole family kind of congregates around Dayton for holidays and stuff, which has been super nice for me.
1: So tell us a little bit, as a reader, what genres do you tend to love to read the most? You mentioned short stories, but I'm wondering, you know, within that category, what genres? And then... As a teacher, do you most enjoy teaching those same genres or do you enjoy teaching different ones?
2: Well, I do really love short stories, like I said. I've got tons of like favorite authors in there Charles Baxter, Daniel Evans, Jubilahiri, just a bunch. And I've spent a lot of my career teaching short stories. And I think that does a service and a disservice because I think so many people, so many writers are interested in the novel. But what's so great about teaching a short story is that you have like, A beginning, a middle, and an end. So you can look at an entire arc versus in a novel, to have somebody write a novel in a semester can be pretty difficult. And I've found that for teaching novel writing, it's mainly about cheerleading and a little bit of planning and just a go, go, go attitude. But Mm -hmm. with the story, I can really look at the arc there. And I think that's been really helpful. So I've taught novel writing, but that's more of a, Oh, I don't want to say just cheerleading, <laughs> like I hope I'm doing more than that, but um, we're talking about structures, but we're not really seeing it played out. Like I mm-hmm. if I write a novel in a semester, I can, I can pretty much guarantee it's not going to be very good. And I have, so, I'm just in awe of anybody who can do it for NaNoWriMo. But what I do, Hope that the students learn in the course of that is you will survive writing a novel. You can write to the end of a novel. It just then comes the revision, which is the hard part. So, for what I've taught as far as novel writing, and even in short stories, I think my focus has really changed. And I think this is something that we're seeing, I don't know, in academia overall in workshops, is that I think that people are a lot more accepting of genre writing than they used to be. When I was in, Graduate school, it was very much everybody was writing realism, which is itself a genre, rather than like fantasy or horror or anything like that. And I think that's really kind of busted open in the last 10 years or so, which I think is great. For me, when I first started teaching, I was like, I don't know those genres as well. I wasn't as confident in teaching them, but I've realized that story is story. We're all looking at the same stuff. So if I can help the students to have kind of that general knowledge and language about how to talk about a story, character art, dialogue, craft, that kind of thing. It should work on anything, whether you're writing about dragons or something supernatural or whatever you're interested in. It should all be able to fit. It's been interesting watching how teaching has changed over the 17 years I've been at my job now.
0: So when you're just reading for fun, what kind of things do you like to read?
2: It's pretty all over the board. I've definitely been reading a lot of thrillers probably in the last five years or so. I like some horror. I still love realism. I love stories about the suburbs and women in the suburbs. It's kind of across the board. I still am drawn to anything really character driven. But the more I've read thrillers, the more I'm like, oh, here's how you have a plot too. (laughs) Which is something as a writer I've really struggled with.
0: So your first novel, Dear Season, I read it several months ago, and I loved it. Uh, It was published last year, and it just won the Edgar Award Mm -hmm. for Best First Novel by an American Author, and it's given by the Mystery Writers of America Association. So was this a big surprise? And it seems like it's a pretty big deal. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, no, I would say it's one of the biggest surprises of my life. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I was quite shocked. I was actually taking a nap, which I tend to do. And I woke up to a text from my friend, Jess Montgomery, and she was like, holy crap, you just got a nomination for an Edgar. I'm like, what? (laughs) This must be a mistake. And I went online and holy crap, there it was. (laughs) I was so surprised. And I think like I was surprised for just numerous reasons. I've never been nominated for anything in my life. (laughs) So that was part of it too. But like with this novel, like I said, figuring out plot for me was one of the hardest parts, one of the hardest things about transitioning from short stories to novels. So to get something for it being a mystery for that somebody said, hey, we didn't figure this out on page 10 or hey, we thought this actually had some plot. was really validating in just the best possible way. And I was uh, like, when I got the nomination, I was like, I am going to make the most of this. I, I like bought a new dress, my husband rented a tux. I'm like, we are going to that ceremony. <laughs> you know? And I was like, I never really thought I would win. I kind of felt like, you know, I had this book with the university press, you know, but I assumed one of the bigger novels would win. And it was just such a shock and such an honor to be in that category. And then to win really just kind of blew my mind.
1: (laughs) Well, let's talk about your your most recent novel, Blackout. So Mm -hmm. that concerns a a female college professor named Maris, who begins Mm -hmm. having blackouts, which at first she thinks are exhaustion related. And then she wonders if they are due to her drinking. She's been sober for about seven months. Mm-hmm. So what is it about blackouts that you find interesting? And why did you want to incorporate those into a story?
2: Yeah, well, I think blackouts are just scary as hell. Like the, you're your self in a moment, like if you're having one related to drinking, you are yourself, you're acting as yourself, but you have no memory of it. And I always kind of thought, oh, it was that you just can't remember. But it's actually that you're your brain at some point just stops kind of recording and you are not able to access those memories. There's the, what they call the brownout too, which is where if somebody's like, oh yeah, remember you dancing on that table? And I'm like, oh yes, that happened more <laughs> in like what they would call a brownout where you can kind of access those memories. But in a, in a real blackout, there's nothing being recorded. And I think there's something really Frightening about that, that your brain shuts down in that way. And so I got to thinking, like, what if that were to happen? But it's not something that a character is doing to themselves mm-hmm. through alcohol, but is maybe something that's happening outside of them. And then what if that's somebody who does have a history of drinking and thinks, oh, well, if I just quit drinking, maybe my life, everything will be fine. And then something like this happens. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, I was really interested to. Kind of explore that and see what might happen for the character,
1: so did you have to do research like with neurologists or do reading about brain function in order to learn a little bit more to write about it
2: yeah, let's be clear. I know nothing about <laughs> <laughs> this just before I went into it, but my husband is friends with a neuroscientist who was happy to be paid in scotch uh, to read <laughs> the relevant sections of the novel in progress, so when I first started thinking about what might be happening to Maris, I was looking kind of at layman's articles online, journals, things like that. But I tried to get as good of an idea as I could about how things would work, what might be possible as far as like, why would this happen to somebody? And my husband, who is much more science minded than I am, he was really helpful as far as like putting all that together. And so I won't get into too much of what actually happens in the book. I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's not as far-fetched as one might hope as far as tracking brain waves and using them for identification. Some of the stuff that goes beyond that in the novel is, and that's where the neuroscientist was really great about being like, well, this is, this is definitely something that's maybe being worked on in the field, but this might be a leap too far, but mm. it's fiction. I think you can get away with it. But what was interesting to me about the, the brain stuff and the, the brain stuff, see, I am not a neuroscientist, <laughs> um, was that uh, in a way, I almost feel like it's a MacGuffin. The first draft I wrote of the novel, it wasn't that. It was that I had in my mind the idea of the memory palace where, you know, people who are trying to remember things think of them in physical locations. Like, here's my memory in relation to walking through my house or something like that. And so I was thinking, what if the memory palace was something real and that somebody could maybe access another person's memories like through different dimensions? And so that's what I had the first draft of the novel. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I think that's too out there for me. And so then I was like, how could I look to science for something that might seem a little more realistic? How it happened was not as interesting to me as what would be the ramifications of that. But I knew, I knew readers too would be like, well, you can't just be like, it happened. <laughs> like I had some kind of like reasoning behind it. Yeah, but I think that some readers have been like, this seems far-fetched. And I'm like, oh, not that part. You know, so like it is it's interesting what they can do with the brain anymore or what they understand yeah. about it.
1: Maris in in the story she experiences a blackout and that Mm -hmm. causes a car accident and from that experience she learns that several women in her community are experiencing the same thing like Mm -hmm. their their autonomic systems kind of all shut down Mm -hmm. you know so it's one thing for one character to have something happen but then I would imagine I mean it definitely would complicate things to then add other characters who are experiencing that so Talk to us a little bit about in terms of not just the neurology, but having other characters experience it. Was that difficult to sort of balance making it plausible versus Mm -hmm. make, you know, like, oh, would this be too coincidental?
2: Yeah, no, that's (laughs) that is a kind of a fine line to walk sometimes between the plausible and the coincidental and a very thin line. And I doubt every writer, any writer gets it right all the time. But that was something that when I first started writing the novel, the main idea I had was that Maris would start having these blackouts. And then I thought, okay, so that gives me something to kind of shoot for in the story as far as like what's happening to her. So that's kind of what I'm in trying to figure out as I'm writing. And then I always think in a novel, there's a point where you think the story is going to kind of come up with an answer and you end up with a bigger problem. Mm. And that was where the other women are also having these blackouts came in where I was like, what if as she's investigating this, she finds out other people are suffering from this too and I was like, "Oh, now that seems like a much bigger problem." <laughs> so, part of it was just me trying to figure out like how to keep the story opening up, but at the same time, I wanted to be tightening the screws, right? Connecting everyone and everything as much as I could. For instance, Janice, another character in the story, she is somebody who teaches at a STEM school and has a pretty good understanding of computers. She's a family acquaintance. She's Marisa's daughter's best friend's mother she's also the person who last saw Maris before she quit drinking so like I wanted these connections between the characters but then at what point like you were saying does it become like too coincidental that they might have to know each other so you're not just bringing in strangers and new characters but you're also not connecting everything too much. And mm-hmm. I'll leave it up to readers whether or not I got those balances right. I think there are probably places where I did and places where I didn't. But I tell you what, it is a very humbling thing <laughs> to write a novel <laughs> and try and like bring all of this together at one time. One thing that I definitely learned working on Blackout was what a difference it makes to work with great editors. And I've had great editors on my other books as well. But like just having so many threads come together in this book and like in a thriller in a different way than I had before, I was so thankful that somebody was helping me with the timeline, helping me with the character arcs, that kind of thing. And it really turned it into a different and a better book.
0: Well, let's talk about one of those other threads that's in the book. So Maris, she's a sociology professor, and she's Mm -hmm. made a name for herself by writing about Me Too and feminist type issues Mm -hmm. on social media. And in particular, there's a local college student who basically got a slap on the wrist for rape. And uh, because Maris has a significant online presence for her writing, it also means that she's sort of at the mercy of trolls who Mm -hmm. want to... Bully her because of the things that she's saying. This storyline reminded me a little bit of the real life story of Brock Turner, who was a Stanford Mm -hmm. student who was convicted of raping a young woman, but then was only given six months in jail, and I think he actually got out in three because he was a popular college—I should say—a popular white college Mm -hmm. athlete. Mm -hmm. So, did you draw on that story at all? Has the topic of boys will be boys of rape, especially in college campuses, Mm -hmm. something you'd been wanting to write about?
2: it It was, yeah, that's something that I've been kind of interested in for a long time, and I followed the Brock Turner case pretty closely, so back to everything comes from Dayton. He is originally from a suburban Dayton, oh, and yeah, okay. I had a friend, a great writer, Kate Geiselman, she wrote an op ed about the Turner case about how white boys in affluent communities are raised kind of not to hear the word no, and as somebody who was in that community. Thought the community needed to look at its culpability a little bit there. And she got some flack for that. I think people in the community were not, some people were not very happy with that take. And I thought it was brave of her to do it. That got me thinking about Maris's writing. So that definitely was an inspiration behind the book. Dylan Charter's case is inspired by Turner's as far as the short sentence and college student, that kind of thing. But they're very different characters. I know nothing about. Rock Turner's personal life beyond what would have come out through the case. So I definitely was thinking about that when I was writing.
0: Maris, the kind of academic work Mm -hmm. she's doing, even though it's a lot on social media, she ends up on TV as a, Mm -hmm. you know, what we would call maybe a talking head, right? Mm -hmm. She gets a lot of attention for that. But a lot of people in her department think it's not really serious Mm -hmm. academic work. Do you see a lot of that in college academia, sort of that, because social media, I wouldn't say it's new, but I mean, it's this like explosive Mm -hmm. thing,
2: but it's not exactly the way the old school uh, journal articles. Yeah, that's definitely something I've seen. And I did speak with a sociologist to make sure I was getting a realistic lay of the land for that field. I'm in English, which is different, but I wanted something that was going to have a more kind of public presence. And I thought sociology would be good for that. But I do think it's something we see kind of across the board. And I think that younger faculty members, I think a lot of women, I think a lot of faculty members of color are coming up against this where it's not the traditional scholarship that we might be used to seeing, but it's got this great public reach, which I think is really important, you know, that, and I think that's one of the ways that we can really keep academia relevant into the cultural conversation is that we are talking about these issues Be it on social media, as talking heads, in the scholarly articles we're writing, but they're getting uh, a much wider audience. So the downside of that is I do think it opens up a character like Maris to trolls and maybe the backlash when people don't agree with her opinions. But those opinions are definitely based in an academic background. Like she's not just on Twitter spouting whatever she wants, you know? But how do you then transfer? notoriety on Twitter to, but this isn't a journal article. So that was something I was interested in looking at and something I think about a lot as somebody in academia and especially somebody who's in creative writing that's now pretty well recognized, but I don't think that's always been the case is like, it's not traditional scholarship.
1: Well, it, it makes me think about some Joe, whoever off the street or Joanne, whoever off the street would not argue if you set an academic journal in front of them and said, argue with this, but they will do that on social media. Well, and I think it's almost scarier than
2: that, because I think now people would argue with their journal. Well, you that's know, I true. Think about how that's much true. opposition there's been to science recently in the last few years. And I think a lot of that does stem from Arguing on social media. Like, Mm -hmm. I get on there and I'm like, really? You think Wendy's is better than McDonald's? I got something to say about that. And it emboldens people then to be like, well, if my opinion about Wendy's matters, what is if I think this about science or what, you know? So I I feel like it has gotten combative in a way I never would have imagined even five years ago.
1: The whole idea of that stresses me out. So let's talk about Maris's (laughs) stressors because Maris, you know, I think that makes her character unique, but also relatable. So she Mm -hmm. has, has this tenuous hold on her sobriety. She's got this stressful job because she's not only is she in academia, but she's trying to get tenure. She's fairly new into her second marriage with an emergency room doctor. And Mm -hmm. she has a teenage daughter and it's somebody who has a teenage daughter and son and another son it it's stressful having teenagers in your house so yes. any character that would be experiencing blackouts they would find that scary but maris's is, hers is compounded because the stress she's under but also she refuses to allow others to help her. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, was, was Maris always written with these stressors in her life? And do you see her predicament, you know, in, in terms of having stress and not really communicating or explaining that need for help as sort of an every woman condition?
2: Well, unfortunately, I kind of do. I think that a lot of women feel like, you know, this whole idea of having it all, that they're able to balance the work life, the raising children, the house, all of that. And it comes with a lot of pressure. And I think that when I was learning about Maris, I was like, well, what's her home life like? What's her work life like? What are things that she's maybe not as happy with in her life. And it really did end up looking a lot like the women I know, who are trying to succeed at their careers, but also raise these families. And then the one thing that's supposed to, you know, help you relax for Maris, it's she's like, Oh, I'll just have a glass of white wine at night, becomes its own kind of problem and monster. And it just keeps going and going and going. And I, I really wanted to explore that, but I don't know that I came up with any answers other than we've got to ask for help. Like mm-hmm. we've got to be able to lean on each other and our partners and get some relief. Like this is not something I'm going to self-care my way out of. I'm not going to take a bath and everything's going to be <laughs> right. fine. So, I tried to be realistic about what her stresses might look like, and I do think she has a drinker's mentality of I can't show any weakness. I can't show how bad this is. And that's why she has so much trouble asking for help from her husband or whoever, anybody else. But I feel like, yeah, I, I've i worked to find a balance in my own life. And one of the best things I did was writing this book. It really helped me think about some of these issues of like, am I trying to be too perfect? Which I don't think anybody would accuse me of. <laughs> <laughs> but, but am I trying to like project this confidence or this calm that I don't have. And it's so much easier if you can just kind of let that go and not feel bad about the job you're doing.
0: I talked a little bit about deer season that I'd read it earlier. It has a very different feel than blackout. Yeah. Uh, Deer season has a very strong sense of place in this small Midwestern town. And it's about what happens when a teen girl disappears Mm -hmm. and blackout is much more of a thriller. There's still obviously a mystery element to it, but it's a much more propulsive pace, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. So when you were writing these two, were your process different?
2: I don't know if the process was so different between them in that I wrote a first draft and I was like, well, that's bad. (laughs) That's a crappy first draft. And for both of them, the majority of the work definitely came in revision. But I felt like I knew early on the ideas were very different. That Blackout was going to be, like you said, a little more propulsive, definitely more of a thriller. And it's part of that, too, is that Deer Season is set in 1985, while Blackout is contemporary. And I think Deer Season hopefully capture some of that kind of slow moving pace of like, they're in a rural community. So they have definitely, there's gossip going around and that can get around pretty darn fast, but not as fast as the text. Mm, (laughs) So I think that that kind of slowed it down a little bit. And the characters are definitely involved in what's happening in the case in Deer Season, but they're not as directly affected as like Maris's and Blackout. So it's funny because whenever anybody's lo- said like, Oh, I really love deer season. I can't wait to read blackout. I'm, I feel like I have to warn them. It's a really different book. <laughs> or if they like blackout and they're like, I'm going to go back and read deer season. I'm like, I hope you don't think it's boring. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> because they just are really different kind of books, but both of them were super fun to write and deer season. It's interesting. Like I've written a lot about rural life, having grown up in Iowa and stuff. And Well, that was the first novel I published. It was the fifth one I wrote. And most of those took place in these small communities and stuff. And I think I just wanted to get that book done and out of me and then move. Now I'll just put everything in Dayton. So what happened to the other four novels that you wrote? Oh, they are embarrassed and living in a drawer somewhere. (laughs) Uh, I needed to write them to try and figure out how to write a novel. I've always been a little bit embarrassed. Five novels, really? That's how long it took you to figure this out and you teach it? But I don't think that's as crazy of a number as some people think it is. Like, I think there's a lot of writers who write novels and try to figure it out before they kind of have one that really holds together.
0: So do you think you'll ever try to to revive any of those, like revise them and...
2: There's one that I really love about a social worker that I might go back to, but the other ones, no, I think that they, they were practice novels and I learned a lot and I'm happy to let them go. I'm not a big one for looking in the rearview mirror with my writing. I'm pretty go, go, go moving forward. So maybe the one, the one I still think about, but the other ones I'm like, nope, that served its purpose. Writing is a long apprenticeship, I think, you know, I tell my students sometimes, I'm like, you're going to probably have to write some practice novels, so you might as well get to it. And with oh, every wow. one, I lost some confidence, but I also gained this realization, no matter what, I'm going to keep doing this. And that, that helped me a lot. Well, even though these two
0: books are very different, there mm-hmm. is one common theme between them, and that is alcohol use mm-hmm. and how it can have a detrimental effect you know, on your character, but also a fictional community. So why do you think that that's a subject you keep returning to?
2: Well, I think it's one that I, to some extent, have a personal stake in. I discovered drinking in college and really took to it. (laughs) Like, I was so good at it. (laughs) Uh, And I've spent a lot of my life trying to balance that. Not to the extent really that Maris does, but it's been something that's followed me around. And there's been some shame in that, you know, that, you know, I used to drink too much and trying to figure out like this idea that women should be competent and in control all the time. So, but that would be a release. And so it's something I really wanted to write about in the book. And in Deer Season, I think maybe that was partly my origin story. (laughs) And that like a lot of people in the community that I grew up in were drinkers. So it's something that I wanted to look at in the book. And the idea of writing Blackout was healing in a lot of ways. It helped me really think about why do I feel like I have to be in control? Why do I feel like I have to be at the top of my game all the time? And it helped me let go of a lot of that through the writing. And I hope that in some some women will see themselves reflected in Maris and maybe let some of that go and let it be healing as well.
0: I have to say, as I was reading Blackout, it made me question whether I had a drinking problem. I don't think that I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. But a lot of times when she was talking about um, it had been a long day, she really mm-hmm. just wanted to have a drink. I mean, I was like, I want a drink too. <laughs> <laughs>
2: No, I have gotten, I've gotten emails from readers saying that. And like, I've had family members texting me and they're like, I'm reading this with a drink in my hand. What does this mean? You know? No, and I think that a lot of people have a complicated relationship with alcohol.
1: So Blackout was picked up by Amazon to be one of their first read selections for June. So first Mm -hmm. read is where Prime members can download a book for free the month before its actual publishing date. So your book published on July 1st. So Mm -hmm. how did that come about? and, And how has that affected your work as an author?
2: Oh, it was such a great confidence boost. Like I was so <laughs> pleased that it was chosen for that. My editor really went to bat for me and championed the book for the program. And it just provided so much more exposure than I would have gotten. Otherwise, I think I had over 3,700 reviews before the book even came out. And it made me feel like, okay, I think I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this book is something that's going to really resonate with people. Thomas and Mercer seem to think it would be. And so far, it's been just a fantastic response to the book. So as I'm working on another one, it's given me some confidence to be like, maybe I'm saying something people will want to hear. It's been great.
0: Well, it's very exciting to see your name on there when I was selecting my read of the month. Well, I think now's a good time for us to take a little breather. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Aaron Flanagan, the author of Blackout and Deer Season, and with Carrie. Carrie, this is the, you know, this is all the time for summer reading, and you... <laughs> Even your summer reading is oftentimes dark and dreary. So what are you reading right now?
1: (laughs) It is. (laughs) So this is actually a book that I listened to while I was driving to and from our vacation. One of our past guests had mentioned this book. Uh, It's called In Defense of Witches, The Legacy of the Witch Hunts and Why Women Are Still on Trial by Mona Chalet. And I went into this book thinking it was about witches, which shows you that I don't read subtitles closely. (laughs) I sort of get hung up on what's in front of the colon and I don't pay much attention to what's behind it. So, if you were thinking that this book is about, I don't know, mythology and witches and like storytelling, it's not. So, the book introduces the history of witch trials and explains how many women accused of being witches throughout history were independent, so primarily unmarried, or childless, or old. And those are a trifecta of things the patriarchy generally tends to hate. And sometimes women were all three of those. So the book sort of begins there and talks about witch trials, witch hunts. But then it continues and it traces all kinds of concepts related to womanhood. So it talks quite a bit about divorce, particularly divorce among women in their 40s and 50s whose husbands decide they want a younger and more docile or pliable version of a woman. It covers beauty standards and cosmetics and plastic surgery and what these things do to women and can do for women. It covers all manner of anti-woman sentiment, whether that has been in the form of religion or Donald Trump or the people who love to blend their religion with Donald Trump. It's a nonfiction book, so if you are, you know, crazy, ragey right now because of I'm waving my hands around at all the stuff (laughs) going on related to women, I would suggest that you know this book. You might want to make this your nonfiction book to read alongside Gwen Kirby's book of stories that I mentioned in a past episode called. Stuff Cassandra saw, but it's not stuff. It's the other word that is kind of what's happening in the world right now. So anyway, four letter word starts with an S. I wouldn't say I enjoyed this, but I learned a lot from it. It, it covers a lot of ground and a lot of it was new to me or made me look at things in a, in a different way than I had before. It's In Defense of Witches, The Legacy of the Witch Hunts and Why Women Are Still on Trial by Mona Chalet. So. Okay. Aaron, great. what have you been reading?
2: Well, uh, one of the books that I read recently that I absolutely loved was *The Damage* by Caitlin Ware. It's about a young man in Maine who's sexually assaulted, and shows how this affects his family as well as the cop on the case. And it's told, I'm thinking mainly from like the cop's point of view, the guy's sister-in-law, and I believe his brother. And it was just gorgeous and smart. Like every paragraph was, the language was beautiful. And there was a lot of surprises and twists. But what I really loved about the book was that those surprises and twists often were thematically driven. Uh, So much of the book is about family and what we're willing to do inside and outside of the law to protect them. So when things would twist, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's it's not just a surprise to me of what's happening in the plot. But it would kind of deepen my understanding about what mattered to the characters. And I just I loved that book. That's definitely been a favorite. It's The Damage. It's by Caitlin Wearer.
0: And would you call this a thriller or it's more in the mystery
2: or crime? I would say mystery. I say it with such confidence, right? (laughs) That's one of those things too. I'm like, I'm not ever quite sure what the difference is between the two, but it wasn't like fast paced, kind of pedal to the metal, but there are twists. Which I think is more thrillery. So but I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with mystery.
0: It's sometimes hard to Mm -hmm. put something into a category like that. Your first one wasn't necessarily a thriller, but it was a mystery. The second one definitely was a thriller. And I guess when I think of thriller, I do think of sort of that propulsive quality that kind of pulls you through. How do you achieve that?
2: That's a good question. I think all those practice novels (laughs) that I wrote were me trying to answer that question. And I think for me part of the problem had been with short stories. Like you get to a resolution, you might not be tying everything up with a bow or addressing all the problems, but you know what the problems are and what you're pointed toward at the end of a short story. And I think when I started writing novels, I was thinking of chapters as short stories. And so I would get to the end of a chapter and I would have kind of addressed whatever the issue was in that chapter. And as a reader, they'd be like, great, time for bed. (laughs) So like I was making it too easy for readers to end on those chapters. And so when I started thinking more about like thrillers and mysteries and how to plot a novel, I realized, oh, no, you have to open something up there. Not everything has to be a cliffhanger, but there needs to be some kind of hook pulling the reader the next chapter. And that helped me a lot as far as structure. And then one of the big things that helped with getting Blackout to be more of a thriller versus a mystery, again, I'm not sure of the difference, was I had such a great editor who had worked on a lot of thrillers, and she really had an eye to the pacing and kind of keeping in mind the idea of surprises as I would go along and how those would pace out. And that just changed the book. Like she Mm. made it such a smarter book. I will say too for a book that I would recommend that I would say is a thriller, and this is especially for all those ragey people out there. <laughs> is they, Lane Fargos? They never learn. It's about an English professor who is killing problematic men on campus, and it's an English professor who has not killed any problematic men. It was a nice escapist read. It was really fun. Cool.
1: I oh, will man, say I too, Mary's going to read that one.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's good.
1: It's I'm good. rather ragey right now, so. Oh.
2: I think every verb is improved by putting rage
1: in front of it. So my husband,
2: like, <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? I'm rage reading. Yes, let a little more punch.
1: Oh, well, Amy, what have you been reading over there?
0: Well, it seems like there's a little bit of a theme in some of the books that we're talking about, because I would say that this one is also has a feminist bent to it. I read the second in the Enola Holmes series by Nancy Springer. So my introduction to the Enola Holmes mystery series was actually through the 2020 Netflix movie adaptation of her uh, Nancy Springer's first novel, which was The Case of the Missing Marquess. And it starred Millie Bobby Brown, who you may know as Eleven from Mm -hmm. the Stranger Things series, and Henry Cobble, who played Superman and some other. He's
1: the Witcher. He's in The Witcher. I like him when he's grubby.
0: Yeah. Well, in this, he plays Sherlock Holmes. So I don't usually watch a movie before reading the book, but I broke my own rule for this one last fall and it was a lovely, fun little movie. So I decided that I wanted to read some of the books and read the first one since I already saw the movie. And even if the movie didn't follow the book exactly, I felt like it was close enough that I knew the premise. So I moved on to the second book in the series, which is The Case of the Left-Handed Lady. So in the series in general, Enola Holmes is the 14-year-old, much younger sister of the famous sleuth Sherlock Holmes. And in the first book, Enola's mother disappears, and her two adult brothers, Mycroft and Sherlock, decide she must now go to a boarding school, like a finishing school, to learn how to be a lady and prepare to be a wife and mother. But their mother was a suffragist, and she homeschooled Enola to be independent, capable, curious and be her own person so enola does not want to lose her freedom and decides that she must run away but she does admire her older brother sherlock and she sort of fashions herself a bit of a mystery solver herself so while she's trying to solve the mystery of where her mother has gone she must also try to keep her genius brother from finding her so what happens in the second book is that enola has started her own detective agency by posing as the secretary slash assistant to a Mr. Rigostin. But of course, there is no Mr. Rogostin. She herself is the detective. So she's taken great pains to disguise herself. Once again, she's trying to evade her brother, Sherlock, while also trying to solve a case in the papers that she saw of a missing 16-year-old daughter of a good family named Lady Cicely, who has disappeared without a trace. So these books are great fun because it's a cat and mouse game between Sherlock and his younger sister, who always seems to get the better of him by just a little. And I, I believe these are considered middle grade books, although the vocabulary is fairly high. There were several words that I needed to look up while reading it, although much of that were terms used in Victorian England that aren't familiar to us. So I would say that these would work for an advanced middle grade reader or above. And it certainly was entertaining for an adult. And they're short. They're more like a novella length. There is a sequel coming out for another Enola Holmes movie, but I don't know if it's based on one of the books or if it's just using the characters for its own story. Either way, Enola Holmes is a strong, intelligent young woman. She's a fun heroine to root for. And there's lots of feminist vibes in the series. If you like it, there are, I believe, seven books in the series. And there's an eighth one coming out in September. I listened to the audiobook of this. It was narrated by Katherine Kelgren and she was a great narrator. All the different characters sounded very distinct and I would highly recommend. And the name of the book is The Case of the Left Handed Lady, uh, number two in the Enola Holmes series by Nancy Springer. So that was,
1: that was, that was do you fun. think the other ones are like you need to know the past ones, or do you think they're pretty standalone-ish?
0: i do think that it helps to have seen the movie or to read mm-hmm. the first one to kind of get the premise of enola and her family and the dynamics between her brothers and her mother gotcha. so I, I do think that you do need to have read the first one or gotcha. seen the movie okay but
1: as far as the ones after that i would suspect that it doesn't make much difference after that well let's take another quick break and when we come back we're going to put Erin flanagan in the hot seat for her three in the third degree back with Erin Flanagan, author of Blackout, and she's going to answer her questions. Number one, your father has a sweet habit of sending you newspaper articles in the mail. What kinds of articles does he send and why do you savor them?
2: So he mainly sends me any kind of human interest story that he thinks I might be interested in. Maybe there's something about a writer in his area, or he'll send me things that the Humane Society in his area are doing sometimes financial stuff, just kind of dad articles, you know? <laughs> the last one he sent me was about how to make a charcuterie board because he knew I had made one for my birthday with my sister. And there's just something so sweet about getting an envelope with my dad's uh, handwriting on the envelope. He has big handwriting. So like, it's, like, you know instantly that that's from my dad. And it always just makes me smile to think that he's thinking about me.
0: How That's long has he been awesome.
2: doing this? Oh, God, since I went to college when I was still Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I would get like every couple of months, I'd just get some rando envelope from my dad, <laughs> or sometimes my mom would send them too. And it would just be, hey, we were thinking of you or some it, like back when they lived in my small town still before they moved after retirement, you know, oh, here's something that somebody in your high school was up to. <laughs> hmm. And I'm like, okay, like, but it was just so touching.
0: Yeah. Also, he's reading real papers as, as opposed to like digital
2: yes. versions. And he, That's a little different. Yeah. And it's funny because he reads papers. I know he reads a lot of them online because he's still reading the Des Moines Register because he lived in Iowa. He's still reading the Chicago Tribune because he used to live in Chicago. He reads the Wall Street Journal. He reads, I believe, the New York Times. But I'm not sure what's always in circulation. As far as the paper one, the last one I think I got was from the New York Times. So Hmm. that might be the only paper one he's getting still.
1: It's a full-time job just to read all those newspapers and stay up on top of what's going on. Oh, Ken
2: Flanagan knows what's going on. Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good
1: thing. Okay, so question number
0: two. We've talked a little bit about how your background is soundly in the Midwest. So Mm -hmm. what are some things that now that you're an adult and you look back are unique about your upbringing in the Midwest. And I have to know if you have a favorite Midwestern food, because Midwestern food,
2: it is its own thing. Oh, yeah. There's nothing you can't hold together with some cream of mushroom soup. (laughs) If you want to go fancy, put a tater tot on it. Um, I would say one of my favorite things about the Midwest that, and I don't know if this was unique to Iowa, but we used to have like soup and pie fundraisers, which was what it sounded like. People would bring like a bunch of soups and a bunch of pies and then you'd you know buy a bowl or for 50 cents or a dollar or whatever and that's how they would get new band uniforms and everything which i always thought was soup and pie it's so simple but it's such a good combo a weird one from nebraska was that they always serve uh, cinnamon rolls with their chili which i never really know and they dunk it in there (gasps) oh my god i know like people in cincinnati like calm down because like you've got it on the spaghetti, but like, it's just a weird (laughs) Nebraska thing. Everyone I knew from there did it. But what are the things that I think about that are unique to the Midwest? I think it's, it's a place that is continually underestimated. Mm -hmm. I think that people really have a lot of stereotypes about people from the Midwest. They're either dopes or they're Karens or whatever it is that people think. And I think there's some of the funniest, most caustic, yet empathetic people in the country. And I really loved growing up in that underdog shadow where people might not have expected a lot, but I don't know, a lot of Midwesterners kind of pull it out with their hard work ethic. Another thing too, that I think is really Midwestern is when I was growing up, my parents had a cross stitch in our kitchen that said, imagine how happy you'd be if you lost everything you had and just got it back. (laughs) Hmm. And I think about that, l- at least once a week, like I'll misplace something and then I'll find it and be like, Oh, I'm so glad I was taking that for granted. Now I'm so happy I have it. And I would just apply it to so many things. And I actually made that cross stitch then for my sister and for myself and we have them hanging in our houses as
1: well. But that's a very Midwestern kind of sentiment for what you have. Well, let's talk about your quilter mm-hmm. and a puzzler. So one of the things that is interesting about quilting and puzzles is they're both activities that solve a problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to piece things together to have a whole, sort of like a mystery. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of quilts do you make?
2: I'm pretty varied. Um, I do a lot of traditional quilting. I do it all on the machine. I'm not uh doing anything by hand. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> um, but my mom actually had a quilt shop on the farm where I grew up. And so she taught me everything I know about quilting and was very generous giving me her fabric all the time too. So it really got me hooked. I do a lot of traditional patterns. I like some contemporary patterns as well. But I just love the idea that it doesn't have to be perfect. There's the mm-hmm. idea of the humility block where it's not like you're competing to be perfect like God. So there would always be a block that would be purposely skewed or wrong or something. And so I would make these huge humility quilts (laughs) (laughs) where it wasn't just a block. But I always loved that I could make a quilt and give it to somebody. And it would do the job of keeping them warm, even if it ended up kind of ugly or imperfect. And that was something that, I don't know, really resonated with me. And the thing about quilting, I realized at one point, I love every stage of it. I love picking out the fabric. I love cutting out the fabric. I love sewing the blocks. I love sewing the blocks together, sandwiching it, quilting it, everything. And when I realized that, I was like, I wish writing was more like that, you know? Mm. Like, as soon as I'm doing a first draft, I'm like, oh, I hate the first draft. I wish I was revising. And then I'm revising and I'm like, well, this sucks. Maybe I should start something new. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I had a hard time really enjoying it as much as, something like quilting and i think it's cuz there was no you know monetary ties to quilting it was just something i did for fun mm-hmm. but i try to remember that i have a post it note that my friend told me she keeps on her computer as well that says this is what i'm doing right now and when i'm like oh i wish i was doing this instead i'm like nope this is what you're doing right now so you should mm-hmm. love this part of it and so i think quilting has really helped me with that and puzzles i think are like you said they're all about problem solving you're trying to put the puzzle together and I am such a big one on using that as part of the writing process anytime I get stuck on a character or a plot point or something I'm like I'm gonna go puzzle and Hmm. like a half hour later I'm like what do you know I got an answer like it really I think the problems and solutions are just marinating while you're distracted and I have friends who like do puzzles and they're like oh I'm always listening to a book and I'm a big believer in listening to a book any chance you can but with puzzles I'm like nope just got to keep it blank. And Mm -hmm. I really think like it's solving problems for me. I love the idea too, that the story is doing the work. Like the story is figuring out the problem while I'm just putting together a puzzle. (laughs) You're just kind of the vessel. Yeah. I do. I like, I think that in some ways, I always like to tell my students, the story is smarter than the writer. And I'm like, oh God.
1: (laughs) Well, Erin, it's been so great chatting with you about both Deer Season and Blackout. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to to spend it with us. Oh, thank you guys so much. This has just been a blast.
0: You can follow Erin Flanagan on Instagram at Erin L. Flanagan or at her website, ErinFlanagan.net.
1: For show notes for any episode, go to our website, www.perksofbeingabooklover.com.
0: We are also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover
1: Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally,
0: a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.